Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple outran, sorry. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind, behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Don't hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. All together. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. The good news of Christ. Amen. Good morning. Happy Easter. You already did it. Let's do it again. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. That's great. When I tried to do that with Kathleen this morning, she said all she could hear in her ear was, so that's better. More clarity. Good. I think it was the time of day, wasn't it, hon? Um, this is Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, we call it. And also, <clears throat> um, it's another special milestone. Does anybody know? Happy birthday to VEV, right? Happy birthday to us. Happy birthday, dear VEV. Happy birthday to you. What a great day for a church to be born. It was on Easter Sunday. And in uh, Easter Sunday, 1989, over here at the Hastings Community Center in the gym, we went public for the very first time. And we've kind of been in the hood ever since. We've moved around, uh, went over to Commercial Drive for a while, and then in 2014 came back here. Felt like we came back home a little bit, kind of where we began. So way to go. And it's kind of exciting. Gary Best is coming next week. I'm not going to be here. I've entered the Sun Run. And uh, 
So I'll be down there doing my 10Ks. And uh, I felt really bad because Gary and Joy were very good friends of us. Joy has passed away and Gary's now remarried and probably will introduce his new bride to us. Um, but it'll be by Zoom. Unfortunately, it would been wonderful to have an in-person for that. Um, but he, uh, he, he uh, founded the Langley Vineyard together with Joe and Charmaine, and they planted out Vancouver Eastside Vineyard. So there's some story there, and I think you're going to really enjoy Gary. So today, we're going to continue our teaching series, Beloved Community in Liminal Time. And can we take the PowerPoint off just so they have the full screen? Is that possible? Oh, thanks, take. And um, this is for the Zoom folks. Hi, Zoom folks. And it's good to see uh, just more of you here today. It's, it's just feeling really good. Uh, uh, good on you. And, and for those of you that are on Zoom, thank you for joining us. We know there's different restrictions and limitations and uh, feelings of safety even that people have about gathering. So we just want to try to be uh, as accessible as we can uh, on as many levels. So um, bless you today as we continue this series, and I'm calling it a resurrection community based on our teaching text that we've just read. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. That's part of our creed. We say that in the Apostles' Creed. But what do we mean by that? When we say that we are a resurrection community in this liminal time that we are in, and I'll explain that a bit more in a minute, it can sound kind of triumphalist, kind of like a Rocky movie, movie where the guy's kind of almost dead, you know, and he comes back and punches the daylights out of the bad guy. And, uh, or how many remember that video, The Champion, that Carmen came out with a few years ago? You know, I think Matt reposted it just for old time's sake a little while ago. And, and it's kind of where Jesus is almost knocked out by the devil. And then he just comes back and just kapows the devil and the champion. And, and actually, Easter really wasn't like that. <laughs> How many know it was a lot more uh, subdued, a lot more subtle? Um, it wasn't Jesus showing up at the temple after the resurrection to all the Jewish leaders saying, Told you, suckers, you know. He didn't do that. Uh, no, it was much more subtle and liminal than that. Like a little tiny blade of grass or glimpse of light that came. And for those of you that are just joining us for the first time in this series, when we say liminal time, in case you're not familiar with the term, we mean this in-between space that we're all in in the world right now because of the pandemic because of everything that's been going on for the last two years, where we know things are never going to quite be the same again. And that's true for our society, it's true for us as individuals, and it's true for us as a church, and the church, universal. I think we're all going through this. Um, but we don't quite know what's going to be yet. We don't quite know what the new normal is. But we've been seeking to carry this confidence that God is never on pause, that God is always at work. And we're trying to have eyes to see, in the middle of all this, what God is doing and to, to, to cooperate with that, I guess, for lack of a better word, to work with that. 
to notice it, to savor it. And liminal time has been really characterized by grief and loss. Um, change always involves grief and loss, even good change. It, you know, when I gave my daughter away in marriage, it was a good change, but it was painful. It was a loss, right? So there's, there's loss that you grieve in, in liminal time. And we're, we're experiencing that. It just doesn't see, it just seems like when we recovered, it's just like, boom, another wave, right, of something. Whether it's Ukraine or another, um, you know, variant that comes. And then there's all these personal tragedies that are happening in the middle of it all, the overdose epidemic. And, and, and you know, I, w I was so moved by Sherry's uh, father's funeral, uh, Henry Hensel, and just a powerful, everything was great, Sherry, but what I really loved was, the, well, not really loved, I loved it all, but the, the really touched me was the, the video and such powerful images, but then it was so poignant where it was during the pandemic and you were all having to visit him through the glass. It just, oh, it just got me. He's in his 90s, you know, and and uh, so they had to, he had a caregiver with a mask on, and you could see his family members on the other side of the mask. And, and thank you, Scott and Kim, for going there to be present to that memorial last week. And happy anniversary to you, by the way. Yeah, happy anniversary to Scott and Kim. <laughs> and, um, and happy anniversary also. I got you guys earlier in the week to Roland and Belinda. Yeah, we love you guys. Woo! I just saw just, just such wonderful marriages in this church. Just faithful, loving, just, you know, working through thick and thin. Just there's a, there's a spirit of covenant faithfulness that I think is, is a real foundation here. It's beautiful. Just bless, bless you guys. Now, where was I? Oh, yeah. So... So they're looking at him through the glass. You could just feel the grief. And I was so grateful for just the story of a life well lived. And this, this kind of grief in the midst of the pandemic has just been on so many le levels. And we're dealing with collective trauma, which I think we see in this text today. I think what we're dealing with when we come to John 20, it's... It, it's not this glowing resurrection hurrah story. It's, it starts with trauma. It says that everything was still dark. John says that. It's all dark, right? Whew. And I'm not a trauma expert, but I've experienced trauma. So I guess that makes me a bit of an expert uh, to some degree. I've received professional help for it. And I know that we carry trauma not only in our mind and our emotions, but it, we carry trauma in our bodies. And if you can imagine what the trauma was that Mary and the disciples were experiencing in John 20, and there are certain events that can then trigger that trauma where we feel like we're reliving it in the moment, even though it has nothing to do with the circumstances that happened. And I know that healing can be slow and painstaking and important steps are important simply to become aware of it. I know for, for my own treatment, 
just becoming aware that it was trauma that was impacting me this way in my perceptions and how I see God and how I see authority figures and how I see men and women. It's informed, it was being informed by trauma. But often we don't know it. And there can be no doubt that Mary and the disciples were suffering from this in this text. Crushed, devastated, grieving and lost at a level beyond what we can comprehend. Can you imagine the mother of Jesus standing there at the cross seeing her first child so brutalized and suffering that way in such humiliation. And the disciples, all they could do was hide for fear of their own safety and their trauma was misinforming them. Everything had changed but they were still seeing through the eyes of their trauma. Think of this. Jesus had, at this text, risen from the dead. He'd risen from the dead. But they were all still hearing and seeing through the eyes of their trauma. Think about that. Even though our text is about the resurrection, it starts out feeling more like Holy Saturday, don't you think, than Easter Sunday. John commented, as I said, that it was still dark. Holy Saturday is that in-between time, the ultimate liminal time, I think. If you think about it, Holy Saturday, that was yesterday. Wasn't it a beautiful day? Everybody and their dog and their three dogs were out. Seriously. It was just like... Go slow, drive slow, walk slow. Just everybody's going, that little ray of sunshine that we haven't seen for three months. I'm going to get out there. So it was a beautiful day. And there was a peace on our city, I felt. that Maybe I'm, that's my perception. But it just seemed like this holy, quiet, hushed, waiting kind of day. And even though Holy Saturday is over, John comments that in spite of the, the fact that this crazy event has occurred, no one knows it except a few terrified guards, perhaps, who had no comprehension as to what was happening. As far as the disciples were concerned, they were still waiting in the darkness. But I want to take a few minutes to focus on my favorite witness to the resurrection, Mary Magdalene. The one who God chose to be the first witness to the resurrection. Not a man, not Peter, not the lead apostle, but Mary Magdalene, whom the Eastern Orthodox Church called the apostle to the apostles because she was the first witness that Christ was risen. Why did he pick her? I don't know. I have some theories. But let's talk about, let's look, look into this for a moment. Who was she, first of all? Well, there's a lot of misperceptions, a lot of rumors and things that have no basis in scripture or history that she was a prostitute. And there's no evidence for that. She was a woman from Magdala, which was a village on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. She definitely had issues, as we all do when we come to Christ. Because in uh, the book of Luke, it says that she became one of the early disciples of Jesus, probably from the very beginning. 
And she with a, another small group of women who were wealthy supported Christ out of their wealth, out of their means. So she was actually a financial supporter of Jesus and the disciples so they could do their teaching and preaching. And she traveled around with them. And it says that she, along with some of the other women that were with her, had been healed of diseases and cured of evil spirits. And Mary herself had had seven demons cast out of her. She came to Christ in a, in a broken state. And who knows what they were? Who knows what hell and havoc these demons wreaked in Mary's life? And, I, you know, with research and medical science and the chemicals and, you know, imbalance and, and how the body and the mind and the spirit all work together, you know, Jesus just cut through all that and showed mercy. We know that there was possible physical disability, mental or emotional dis havoc, moral failure and addictions. Uh, you, know, you know why someone's an addict, right? Because somewhere, somewhere, they made a choice, and now they can't make the choice not to, right? That's how it works, right? And it's, it's, it's an illness. It's an illness, not a moral issue. I love what the great Scottish preacher Alexander White said. We wonder what Mary's seven demons were, but the real question is, what are ours? The point is that unlike most of us, Mary named and owned her scars and her wounds and threw herself at the mercy of Christ as her only hope. And unlike most of his disciples, she stayed with him right up to the very end when most of them had fled in fear. She was there at the cross along with another Mary and another Mary. A lot of people were called Mary back then. Frances, she's so cute, because her actual name is Mary, you know, Frances Carla. She said just so many people were called Mary up there when she was being raised as a Catholic. She said she just decided to go with her second name. So similar issue, I guess. So they had to distinguish who the Marys were. So this was Mary Magdalene with three other Marys, two or three other Marys. In the Passion story, we know that she was with him and watched at the cross. And it seems like John the Beloved was there for part of the time. And we can only imagine the sheer trauma of Mary Magdalene as she witnesses the brutalization of the one she loved more than anyone on earth. I mean, they had to have had an incredible special relationship. They had to have been incredibly close. Kind of like Francis of Assisi and Claire, or who, who's that guy, Francis de Sales and Jean de Chantal? These beautiful male-female relationships that were pure and holy, and, but passionate. And even at an emotional level, somewhat erotic. God made all that. Jesus didn't seem to be ashamed of it or hide from it. He was openly affectionate to her and allowed her to be affectionate to him. Can we imagine, even for one second, let's go back to his mother, what she had to bear watching him. And so finally Jesus could bear it no more, watching his mom. And he said, John, she needs to get out of here. I don't want her to watch this. I mean, you don't read that, but you kind of get that feel, right? John, take her home. Be her son. Let her be your mom. 
So here he is hanging in the most brutal, agonizing death you can imagine, and he's still taking care of other people. He's still taking care of his mom. John said in John 13, when he got up to wash the disciples' feet, Jesus loved his own, and he loved them to the very end. He didn't stop loving them. Love never ceases. Love never fails. Their prophecies, they will fail. Tongues, they'll cease. Miracles and works and mighty exploits, they'll be gone. But love never fails. But Mary stays. Mary Magdalene stayed when Mary, the mother of Jesus and John, leave. Mary Magdalene stays and again, Alexander White says, Jesus did not dismiss her because she refused to be dismissed. <laughs> yeah, and when he died, she stayed. When Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus came and took him down from the cross, that bloodied corpse, unrecognizable, and they take him and they wrap him in the linen and the spices and they carefully place him in this tomb and they roll the stone. Mary is still there. Matthew tells us, Mark tells us, Mary is still there. She's still watching. We don't know how long she stayed on Good Friday. We don't know. The only indication is that when Pilate finally assigned a guard and put a seal on the tomb, it seems that she may have left for a while on the Sabbath. But then as soon as Sabbath is done, she's back. She's right there. She's there. Why? It's called love. It's called love because she'd been loved. It's, it's called love because she'd seen love. It's called love because she, her eyes were open to love. That it was the greatest power on earth, greater than hatred, greater than violence. It was a love that forgave the torturers, the accusers, the liars. The slanderers. It's the only hope for the world. It's the only light. It's the only springtime. It's the only sunshine. It's the only flowers. It's this love. She knew that. In spite of everything that had happened, it's all dark, but she said, this is the only thing that makes sense about anything. Even though nothing makes sense right now, even though my beloved is dead, this is still the only thing that makes sense. So Saturday night, as soon as she can, she's back. Or early in Sunday morning, when it was still dark, still blinded by grief, she sees the stone rolled away, and her heart sinks. Trauma tells her, oh, no, they've stolen his body. It's like they kicked us when we're down. Instead of this being any kind of good news, this only increased her anguish. Someone has taken his body, so she ran to Peter and she told Peter and John, she cries, they've taken him away. I don't know where they put him. So Peter and John, they run, and John makes the point. He wrote the book that he outran Peter. Got there first. N.T. Wright says in these couple of verses, there's more running than all the New Testament combined. They ran, they ran, ran, ran. So John looked in the tomb first, and he's kind of tentative. He was a younger guy, right? So he looks in the tomb, a little bit cautious, a little bit shy, and he sees the linen cloth that Jesus had been wrapped in lying there without the body. 
So he gets out and goes, well, that's strange. Peter shows up out of breath. Being Peter, he just kind of blows right in there. And he not only sees the linen, but he sees the, the, the cloth that wrapped Jesus' head in a place by itself, as if Jesus had risen right up out of it, not like Lazarus who needed to be unwrapped. He just kind of, whoop, kind of beamed himself out of there. So then, I love this. Oh, can you catch this with me? Finally, John, it says he dared, he said, okay, Peter, you went in, I guess, and you survived to tell the story. I guess I'll go in too. So John goes in. He dares to go inside, and the gospel says this. These three words, he saw, or I guess it's four, he saw and believed. He saw that linen cloth there, and then he saw that kind of head. And he, he caught a glimpse that in spite of all the darkness, in spite of all the insanity, in spite of all the tragedy, the grief, the idiocy of the way human beings treat each other, he saw... the world had turned a corner. The world had turned a corner. He didn't understand it. But it was like when I used to live in Alberta and I had 40 degree, and I mean minus 40, for a month every night. And all of a sudden, sometime around mid-March, end of March, all of a sudden, I'm walking to school in my toque and my scarf and my slits for eyes. And all of a sudden, I notice a little bit of running water. Trickle, 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 trickle. Like the first bud, blossom. Like the first songbird. Morning is broken. Morning is broken. A Cat Stevens songs, I used to sing that all the time. Morning is broken. When I was 17 years old, Scott was 12. Morning's broken. Then we're left with Mary who's outside the tomb and she's weeping. You see, sometimes we're so engulfed in our grief, we don't see the, saw, the thaw. We don't see the signs. We don't see the angels or as Mr. Rogers says, the helpers. The angels asked her why she was weeping, and again she said, they've taken my Lord away. She's telling the angels this. They've taken him away, and I don't know where they put him. Trauma, 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 still informing her, still informing her. But at this point, she turned around, and there's Jesus standing there. What a, what a scene. There, but she didn't recognize it. Again, trauma. I wonder how often this occurs for us. We're blinded by our grief, our perceptions. Again, she's asked this time by Jesus, why are you crying? What are you looking for? Thinking he's the gardener. She says, sir, if you've taken him away, just let me know where you put him, and I'll come and get him. I can just see Mary carrying that corpse. But see, love is crazy. There's a craziness about love, right? Just transcends this. Just goes heart. It was just, this Mary, this Mary is just heart, heart, heart. And then he says something that changed everything. 
He said, Mary. And at that moment, she cried out, Rabboni, or teacher, or master. My mom tells me when I was three years old, you see, I was named Gordon George Lagore. That was my birth name, right? It's on all my passports and all that. At three years of age, I was watching Gordie Howe play hockey on black and white TV. And I was impressed. And I turned around to my mom and my dad, and I said, I will now be called Gordy. <laughs> and you know what? That's what Jesus calls me. I've heard his voice. He calls me Gordy. He calls me a few other things, too. But there's something about that recognition when your name is called, right? And she was mirrored again. The mirror of our belovedness gets broken by trauma. But by hearing that voice, that name spoken, that mirror of, who, of her belovedness was healed. And she said, Jesus, Master. And then she grabbed him. And that's the greatest temptation in liminal time, isn't it? To grab and hold on to the past. He says, let me go. He says, it's going to be different now, Mary. It's going to be better. The container that you had for me cannot contain what you're about to encounter now. Just let me go. Go tell your brothers and my brothers. And go to my, I'm ascending my father and your father. Just tell them I'm going. And it's going to be a new relationship. It's going to be different, but it's going, to, it's going to be amazing. Go tell them I'm risen. Uh, the Eastern Orthodox art, uh, some of you have seen this in the writings this week, Eastern Orthodox art for the resurrection. In the Western, the resurrection of Christ is often depicted as a very individualistic thing, where Christ raises from the dead. But in Eastern Orthodox, it, it shows him bringing all the people out of hell with him. Like Ephesians 4 talks about that. He brings them all out of hell with him. And that's the glory of the resurrection is we will be raised. It's not an individual thing. He raised a community. In fact, in some of the Gospels, it says that the saints walked around in Jerusalem after he rose. People were walking around risen then. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Love wins. But it's not a rocky kind of win. It's not a champion kind of win, like a TKO. Love wins. You know, how does God destroy your enemies? How does he destroy your enemies? By loving them so they are no longer your enemies. Right? That's, that's how God destroys God's enemies. Reckless love pursues us. No lie, he won't break down. No wall, he won't kick down. Running after you, running after me. Love wins. So in spite of all of her trauma and her confusion, she stayed with Christ. She stayed in love. She stayed in spite of trauma, chaos, the ridiculousness of her times. She stayed in love, choosing the way of love. And it starts just by letting him keep loving you. She saw that love on the cross that we sang about when I surveyed the, old, the, blood, the, the rugged cross, the, the, um, the cross. That love, she saw that. She witnessed it. She stayed in that love. And though she, even though she got it wrong and thought his body was stole, 
stolen. She stayed in love. She followed her heart. I will bring his body, that letter to truth. He's risen. And we'll get it wrong. We're not going to get it right all the time. We'll go up cul-de-sacs. When we seek to love well, we're not always going to get it right. But we can never get it wrong by staying in love, staying lovingly present to those around us who are suffering in their anguish and their pain because nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. No height, no depth, no things present, no things to come. No principalities or powers can separate us. Think of it. Nothing, 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 nothing. No nuclear threat. No economic meltdown. No pandemic. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And all you have to do is just, just believe it. Just accept it. Like John. He saw, he believed. Okay. The world sucks, but life's beautiful. Life is hard, but life is beautiful. Jen, you know, our beautiful Jen, songbird, our, our songbird in our church, she's been taking ukulele lessons, and this, this couple that teach, it's, it's the second largest ukulele school, second to the one in Hawaii, in the world. I didn't know that. And they're also part of a jazz band. And they wrote this song, and I want to play it for you. If you can just go to the next slide, uh, my slide there. Is it ready to go? I think I had a slide before the, the video, didn't I? I think I did. Yeah, I was going to show you them. Yeah, they're there. So this is the band. So this girl, her name is Daphne. And she wrote this song I want to play for you. And her husband, Andrew, on the right, they moved to Cordes Island with a dream to have a retreat house for musicians on their site. And within a, I don't know how long they've been there, it burned down. Oh, yeah, within a year and a half. Just, they had to start all over. And it was right kind of in the pandemic and everything's going on. And right in the middle of that, this song came. And this song, you know, it's not an overly religious song. It's not an overly spiritual song. But I just feel like it's truth. It's just so true. So I want to bless you with this. And uh, before I do, I want to give you this question. Is it there? Yeah. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. In this liminal time, how is God and love inviting you to still plant your apple tree? So think about that. It'll make sense as you listen to the song. Let's just reflect on it. 